every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk on Wednesday the 3rd of May. I'm Peter Lewis. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the International Monetary Fund has raised its growth forecast for Asia-Pacific, predicting the region's GDP to expand 4.6% this year, which is 0.3 percentage points higher than its forecast in October. It expects China and India to contribute around half of global growth this year, with the rest of Asia-Pacific contributing an additional fifth. That would mean the region would contribute around 70% of global growth. Hong Kong's economy expanded 2.7% year-on-year in the first three months of 2023, following four consecutive quarters of contraction. The latest data was unexpectedly announced by Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee at his weekly press conference on Tuesday, and beat economists' forecasts of a half a percent expansion. It was also a big improvement on the 4.2% contraction seen in the fourth quarter of 2022. The Reserve Bank of Australia unexpectedly increased its cash rate by 25 basis points to 3.85%. That's the highest level since April 2012. Economists had expected the central bank to keep rates unchanged again at 3.6% as inflationary pressures ease from elevated levels. And more than 159 million trips were made by car, rail, aeroplane and waterways on the mainland over the first three days of the five-day Labour Week holiday, which ends today. That's up 162% from the same period last year, according to data from the Transport Ministry. And China's Ministry of Commerce reported major retail and catering companies saw sales expand 21% from a year ago. On today's programme, I'm joined by our regular Thursday commentator, Enzio von Fahl and Will Denyer, US economist at Gavacal. We're also going to talk about Asia's frontier markets with Rushir Desai, fund manager at Asia Frontier Capital. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street Tuesday, U.S. stocks fell for a second consecutive session on soft jobs data and further concerns over regional banks. The S&P 500 slid 1.2% and closed at 4,120. The Dow fell 367 points or 1.1% to end at 33,685. The Nasdaq Composite dropped 1.1% ending the session at 12,081. The rescue of First Republic failed to halt the slide in regional banking shares. The KBW Regional Banking Index tumbled 5.5% to its lowest level of the year. PacWest, seen as one of the weakest of the mid-sized regional banks, was briefly halted before closing almost 28% lower at a record low. Western Alliance was down more than 15%. And Utah-based Zions Bank was the biggest faller on the S&P 500 index, dropping almost 11%. J.P. Morgan Chase's shares slipped 1.6%, giving back some of its gains from the previous session. Hong Kong's Hang Seng initially rose as much as 2%, but gave up most of those gains to end the day just 39 points or 0.2% higher at 19,934, as weaker than expected. Manufacturing PMI data on the mainland so doubts over the strength of the nation's economy. Futures markets are pointing to a decline of 277 points for the Hang Seng. That's 1.4% when trading starts this morning. Yesterday, the tech index fell 0.1%. And mainland China markets are closed until tomorrow for the Labor Day holiday. 
Shares of HSBC climbed 4.5% in Hong Kong after it reported pre-tax profit jumped by 8.7 billion US dollars to 12.9 billion in the first quarter, more than three times the figure from a year earlier. It was boosted by a provisional gain of $1.5 billion on its acquisition of Silicon Valley Bank's UK arm, which it bought for a nominal £1. HSBC also said it was launching up to $2 billion of share buybacks and a $0.10 per share dividend. That's its first quarterly dividend since 2019. And elsewhere in the markets, oil prices slumped today after OPEC Plus began its latest cut to production. Brent crude oil fell 5% Tuesday to $75.32 a barrel. That's its lowest price in more than a month. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us our regular Wednesday morning commentator, Enzio von Feil, who is a capital preservation specialist for individuals. Morning, Enzio. Morning, Peter. And also with us, Will Denya, who is U.S. economist at Gavacal. Morning, Will. Good morning, Peter. Well, the U.S. Federal Reserve set to raise interest rates by 25 basis points tomorrow morning, Hong Kong time, with two key gauges now showing persistent U.S. inflation pressures in recent months. According to the CME's FedWatch, traders are pricing odds of 85% of a quarter of a percentage point hike. That will take the Fed's funds rates to a target range of 5% to 5.25%, which is the highest level since 2007. And so, Andrew and Will, we know what's going to happen. We're pretty certain what's going to happen tomorrow. The key is what's going to happen afterwards. Markets seem to disagree with the Fed. The Fed seems divided itself um, over where it goes next. What do you think? So the Fed is first and foremost an inflation manager. That we know. Um, Now, the Fed has changed the way that it looks at inflation in recent years. Before 2020, it was largely a forward-looking inflation targeter. Uh, Inflation expectations uh, in the market as well as their own mattered more than trailing inflation numbers. Now, that has changed, uh, at least on the margin, uh, since 2020 for two reasons. First, the Fed actually changed their uh, their target to an average inflation target, which means by definition they have to incorporate trailing inflation numbers into their their policy decision making, uh, as opposed to before it was a bygones policy where they were always just looking at inflation in the future. Whatever they missed in the past was you know let bygones be bygones. Uh, and the second reason, and perhaps the more important one, is that the Fed got its inflation target just horribly wrong in 2021, and so now Powell. Uh, and his economists basically have egg on their face and need to restore the confidence uh, of the market in the Fed, restore the credibility of the Fed. And and they, they frankly just probably don't trust their own inflation forecast. And so Powell is very much in a, you know, show me, don't tell me inflation is coming down mode. Uh, and, and it's understandable why. Um, and, and I agree with him that getting the Fed's credibility back in shape is is critical. Uh, however, this does increase the risk if you are a, you know, more of a backward-looking than forward-looking uh, inflation targeter that you stay too tight for too long. Um, and I think that is you, you take that increased risk combined with the fact that we had exceptional policy stimulus for a couple of years and we had some massive changes in the way people consume and work. And, and so the economy is, is, is shifting to that new normal 
you combine extreme stimulus with extreme and perhaps prolonged tightening and major changes in the economy. Um, and then to think that we're going to come out of that with either no recession or a mild recession, you know, hard, mm. you know, a soft landing or no landing to me feels like wishful thinking. I, I, I do wish that I do hope that's the case. But uh, to me, I'm in the, the hard landing recession camp. Enzio, we're, we're yeah, not too I'm tight yet, are we, though? Start again, Peter. Sorry. The um, interest rates, monetary policy isn't tight yet, is it? I don't think, I think it has a lot of way to, a long way to tighten and the quantitative tightening again about April 2 um, I don't proclaim to be a monetarist, but it just seems as that's when the balance sheet shrinkage began properly. And I think also the second tightening is going to be very much because of the private sector. I think that the private banks, especially the, the smaller guys, the ones that again yet again are under, under the gun, um, are going to be putting the brains in on their credit lending, especially to the property sector. So you will have a private sector tightening along with a Fed tightening. That again ties in with where I would agree with Will that the um, that the recession, the the landing, is really going to happen. It may not. It, it's not happened yet. We kind of figured that one out. But I don't I like that if you have an excess and for money, in other words, throttling of money supply, throttling of credit growth, I don't see how economies grow off that. So I'm don't, I don't think this time it's different. Will, do you, do you think uh, we're, we're too tight at the moment, or has uh, the Fed got it about right now? So I don't know. I think if I was the Fed, I would uh, – I, I say I don't know for sure. I, I actually think that, that policy is quite tight between rate short rates, uh, I do think are quite high, especially relative to inflation expectations. Now, if you look at it relative to trailing inflation, real yields don't mm. look high yet. Uh, but I think what matters is, is forward inflation expectations when you're deflating yields. Uh, if you look at all the yields in the economy, whether it be return on invested capital in the corporate sector, uh, equity earnings yields, bond yields, um, if you if you compare real yields uh, at the short end of the curve, which is what the Fed is most directly controlling, they're extremely high um, on a relative basis compared to the past. Mm. I mean, every time we've seen them this high relative to all those other yields in the point, in the rest no. of the economy. We've had we've had a recession, um, and then at the same time, the Fed is contracting its balance sheet, um, and so we've actually had a an outright contraction in the money supply. So you know, some people say, well, yeah. okay, it's it's a mild contraction in the money supply after a massive increase in the last few years. Shouldn't shouldn't doesn't that mean that kind of on net we're still in positive territory? And to me, they're actually additive on the negative side. The fact that you had so much easy money and cheap credit for a couple of years probably started a bunch of economic projects that are not uh, viable at higher yields. And now that we have money supply contracting and real yields higher, uh, I think a lot of those unsustainable projects are are getting downsized and will eventually fail. Um, and, and of course, we're seeing some banks getting into trouble as well. Um, and so I, I do think they're tight. As far as Answering the question, I, I totally agree with Inzio that on top of the policy tightening, um, you know, the, the stresses in the banking sector and probably every bank out there is kind of rethinking their risk management. Uh, every bank regulator out there is calling up the banks and saying, 
let's rethink our risk management. And so banks were already tightening their belts, tightening lending standards before SVB, uh, First Republic and Signature Bank um, blew up. And now they, um, they've got to be tightening even more. So I, I totally agree there. Um, now, you know, I haven't actually answered your question uh, at the beginning of where where Fed policy is going from there. I've kind of given my view on what Fed policy is likely to do to the economy, and I think that's necessary to to now answer your question. Um, Crucial. Very clearly, they're going to hike, as you said, tomorrow. Uh, given that they are backward looking, I think there's a risk if inflation continues. I mean, right now it's coming down, but very gradually. Um, there is a risk that they continue to keep hiking rates. Uh, until they are convinced that inflation really is trending down. Personally, I think they should pause and just kind of let the existing tightening work its way through the system and see mm. what happens before they keep going. But given the given the context that I just explained, there is a risk that they keep hiking. As far as the balance sheet contraction, which there has been less talk of, but I think is important, um, I think we're actually getting close to the end of quantitative tightening. Um, when the Treasury lifts its debt ceiling, it's going to suck a bunch of, or sorry, when Congress lifts the debt ceiling, it's going to allow the Treasury to issue debt and suck up a bunch of reserves from the system. When they do that, by my estimates, that is going to bring reserves in the system down to the range that I think the Fed is probably guesstimating is around ample, which is the goal of quantitative tightening. Um, so after that happens, I think we'll probably get either a tapering or, a, or an outright end of quantitative tightening not long after that. Enzio, isn't it markets, investors, they're looking for some sort of guidance here. Isn't the problem, one of the problems anyway, and one of the reasons maybe why the Fed is in some difficulty is that it, it seems to have given up giving any sort of forward guidance. I'm sure Jerome Powell will be asked at the press conference tomorrow. Um, and as usual, he's not going to give any indication about whether or not we're close to the end of the cycle, whether more rates are coming, uh, what it is that will decide. He'll just say we're data dependent. Isn't that a problem? Shouldn't the Fed try and give some more guidance um, as to what's guiding its thinking? Of course, but I think it's so anachronistic in the way that it looks at inflation. It looks at it very much in a purely monetarist, too much money chasing too few goods, demand side equation. I think there's a lot of supply side mess going on that is not being factored in. The only one who's talked about this ever in my reading of this spotty, I will admit, is Janet Yellen. But I mean, we've got sticky inflation from the supply side, food, the just the... Um, El Nino La Nina in Argentina, which accounts for about 40% of soybean and meals exports, 8% of global wheat exports, or well, food prices will remain high because La Nina is not going away. Labor, people don't want to work in the jobs beneath them, so up go the prices of menial labor. Surprise, surprise. Oil, forever an unforecastable political football. Rare earths and metals, again, because of the structural change in the move to electrical cars and all this ESG um, movement, you'll find that those prices will remain high. So I think it's the part of the reason that they're forward, that they're not forward looking is because they are very anachronistic in the way that they're looking at inflation, they're not being holistic. They're only looking at demand-side, demand-driven, not supply-side-driven inflation. What is the risk that we get something 
worse than a recession uh, and we get stagflation. And, and the reason why I ask is I'm, I'm looking at the ISM manufacturing survey, uh, which came out this week, which showed new orders in yeah. contraction, but prices paid uh, rising quite fast. That That looks stagflationary to me. Well, we've been rattling on about this for a couple of years, frankly. I suppose if you say long enough, it'll happen. But I think there's a very real risk that you get this protracted um, slowdown, which is, it, it, I mean, whether it, whether growth goes to zero or just stays very, very tepid, that's, that's academic in my mind. The fact is that you have high prices remaining at about 4% in my head um, on just the consumer price index. And um, the output slowing because the credit crunch will hit, and that will form a form of stagflation, which is going to polarize U.S. society going into the elections even more. Will do you worry about stagflation? Is this a, a something we should be thinking about? Yeah, I'll actually answer your last two questions if you don't mind. So, the, on the stagflation, we always have to be worried about it, but uh, I, I personally think it's a low odds possible uh, likelihood because. Uh, if, because like I said, I do think the Fed has been tightening very aggressively, both with rate hikes, which discourages banks from lending, and we're seeing, you know, co commercial bank credit growth has flatlined. The Fed is contracting its balance sheet. So on the whole, money supply is contracting. You know, yes, there's there's supply uh, issues, and, you know, money supply is just one of the components of inflation. Uh, but, you know, given how aggressively the Fed has been tightening, I have a hard time seeing inflation persisting for a very long time now mm. i mean of course it's it can be stubborn for a, for a year or two um but and i could be wrong so I, that's not a high odds likelihood for me on your question about ford guidance the fed used ford guidance very heavily earlier in this cycle um and i don't think it's using it as much right now for two reasons the first is um there might be a couple of bankers out there that might punch them in the face if they do this again. Do you remember the, uh, we're not even thinking about thinking about hiking rates? Um, it, was about, yeah. it was about that time that uh, a few of the banks that are now in the headlines uh, were buying long-duration treasuries and mortgage-backed securities because there was no risk of their short-term funding costs going up because um, they're not thinking about thinking about raising rates. Um, and of course, now we've had quite a few rate hikes. So I think Part of it is the Fed is like, okay, now let's back off on that a little bit. Um, and then the other reason is just because the outlook is less certain. They're getting toward a turning point, you know, it, whether it's a pause or a pivot, they're getting somewhere near probably a point where, where they adjust policy and they're wanting to take it slow. I mean, they, they, it's it, the situation is not clearly arguing for more rate hikes. It's not clearly arguing for rate cuts or a pause. And so they want to kind of take it one day at a time. Now, the Fed's also going to be raising rates as we've got a, a banking crisis, which doesn't seem to have abated yet, although JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said that it was pretty well over. You look at the markets today, it doesn't appear uh, to be over yet. What, what is the risk that this starts also um, affecting the economy? Because maybe credit, uh, you know, uh, gets squeezed. Banks are less willing to uh, to lend. We may see more regulatory um, action uh, against them. Is this going to have a, an effect on the real economy? Dog's it breakfast. It's going to be awful because the regulators don't really come out of the banking business sector, so they don't really know what they're doing. And the 
because of correspondent banking relationships, you can't just sort of say, well, the little guys can do their own thing and the big guys do their own thing. They're all interconnected because of correspondent banking relationships where the big guys lend to the little guys and vice versa and all that. So mm -hmm. it's horribly interconnected. And I'm afraid that especially when the little guys at the grassroots level in Des Moines, Iowa, or Eugene, Oregon, or Boise, Idaho, decide that they're not going to lend to the local property market, I'm afraid that's then where the contagion effect starts. Oh, dear, they're not lending to my sector here in, in Eugene. What happens to, to the guys over in New York City or in Boise or in Wisconsin? Will, how do you see this feeding through to the, the real economy, if at all? I concur. <laughs> I mean, basically, we're in agreement here. I, I, they, the banks, the banks are in, interconnected uh, in part because of you know the, the lending to each other, but also just because they're they're all facing the same yield curve that is yeah. flat or inverted. There's you know if your if your business is borrowing short and lending long, you're not that incentivized to do it at the moment, um, and at the same time, your um, ha your in your funding costs are going up, not just because of rate hikes, but because people are starting to wake up to the fact that they can get higher yields in uh, money markets, and they're starting to pull money out. Um, now, the way I've described this is uh, just anecdotally thinking about myself. I mean, changing banks is really annoying. So if you're at a big bank, you're probably not going to... Um, pull all your money out and open up a new bank account, um, or you may not because it's a hassle. But I'll tell you what I've done is like, I, you know, I used to be a little bit uh, casual about having some extra cash in the bank that, you know, wasn't earning any interest because opportunity costs wasn't that high. But now that I can earn 5% on money markets, um, you know, I, I manage my cash levels a little bit better. Uh, and I, pull, I only keep what I need in, in my checking account for, you know, the next few months and put everything else in T-bills. And I, I, so I think in that way, even the big banks uh, are seeing deposit flight into money markets and that's raising their funding costs. And so, so yeah, it, it, it's going to affect the real economy. And in my opinion, it already is. We're already seeing it. Okay. Um, let's turn our attention to Hong Kong because Hong Kong's economy has exited recession. Uh, it expanded 2.7% year on year in the first three months of 2023. That follows four consecutive quarters of contraction. It also beat economists' forecasts of a half a percent expansion. Also a big improvement on the 4.2% uh, contraction that we saw in the fourth quarter. Um, Enzio, what do you make of, uh, of this data? It seems to be fueled by a bit of a spending boom, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a spending boom, but I think it's a short-lived one. I'm more concerned about something deeper, more pervasive that I call dirigist capitalism creeping into Hong Kong. We had it with the state council in China, which understandably steers China's economy. That's how the system works over there. Um, and that, But now what we're seeing increasingly is our own um, leaders here saying that they want to incentivize growth by having a moderately liberal fiscal stance. In other words, let's issue more consumption vouchers. Let's have more happy Hong Kong and movements <laughs> like that. I find that as a Hayekian, last student of von Hayek's, very, very disturbing to see that the, the free market is becoming replaced by better than the markets can themselves. In other words, they're yet again emulating China. I'm not knocking China in any way. I think what they've done is fantastic. I just don't know whether it's a 
applicable and necessary in Hong Kong. Mm. I mean, Hong Kong was known for its sort of laissez-faire approach to the economy, wasn't it? The, the market dictated things. Well, I mean, this quite is a quite hotels a... being laissez-faire, yeah, but not so laissez-faire. Absolutely. Will I yeah, wonder? Feel... Sorry, carry on. I was just going to say. The other day, I was looking. I saw a big bulletin board, you know, at the bus stop for Hong Kong's new minimum wage, and then. And then I turned around and there's a consumption voucher. And uh, yeah, the road to serfdom also came to my mind. In mm. I, I, I don't yeah. want to sort of cast a cloud over this, but I'm wondering, is it really that great, though, when you compare that, you know, you know the base effect really we should should give us quite a big boost because a year ago the economy contracted 3.9 percent. I'm, I'm actually wondering if if you take that into account, maybe the figure isn't so great after all. Well, I think that there are a lot of structural problems, as we all know, in Hong Kong itself. I mean, I've always maintained that we're the water skier off the back of China's economy. I, for one, don't think that China's um, growth is robust. I think that private consumption there is quite wobbly because of income insecurity in China itself. And if China doesn't really boom, then it's very difficult how we, the, the, the small neighbor who rely on everything from China, food, water, etc., tourists, how we can then flourish when China isn't really flourishing, and I don't think will for some time yet. Mm. Are you worried about the unbalanced nature of the economy on the, the mainland? Because the, uh, the, the markets, investors in the markets don't seem to be too convinced at the moment. Uh, and we saw obviously the manufacturing sector in the latest PMI data uh, slip into contraction, although the services sector seems to be doing quite well. Um, but what happens when all this revenge spending comes to an end, which it always inevitably does? Well, I've, I just felt that Will's thoughts, but I mean, mine is that, that China is not a Lazarus. In other words, it's not going to awaken from the dead and all of a sudden spring to life in a sprightly fashion. Its economic time is characterized by an excess supply of money, but also by an excess supply of goods. That's kind of where Japan was stuck for many, many years. And I'm afraid that that's, that they're going to have to, it'll take quite a bit of skill to get China out of that rut. Um, I think they will because they're, they're very pragmatic people, but I think it's, 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 not, it's not going to be a, a fast, easy process. I think Hong Kong um, is going to um, then end up similarly with some sort of false dawns, a little bit of mirage growth going on, but not the real stuff. Well, what are your thoughts on the, uh, on the mainland? I was just in Beijing, actually, and just completely anecdotally, I flew in from Tokyo to Beijing, paid a stupid amount for that ticket, and then the flight was about 10 to 15% full. It was a Dreamliner with like 30 people on it, um, and then the airport was empty when I arrived. Uh, so that was that was surprising to me. Um, but then when I got on the plane to come to Hong Kong, uh, you could not fit another person on the plane. It was packed, uh, and they, the airport was uh, had a few more people. So... You know, it, it seems to me like, you know, in terms of the pent-up demand, my best guess is that it's it's still come, still to come. Um, feels like Hong Kong is one of the first places to experience it, and that's probably partly behind the, the stronger GDP numbers. Um, but it seems to be taking longer for Hong, for China to resume travel to Japan, to Europe. And, and whatnot. Um, and that may just be because, you know, people don't plan international travel next week unless it's a mm. business trip. Um, and so it, it may just be a few months. Um, so 
I, I think a lot of the pent up demand for travel and whatnot is is still to come. When it comes to manufacturing and whatnot, I think the the, the difficulty there, of course, is that if I'm right that we're heading into a recession in the U.S., then it's it's going to be difficult for for China's and I mean the, for Absolutely. global manufacturing to do all that well. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts there. You heard there Will Denya, who is U.S. economist at Gavacal, and Enzio von Fahl, who is a capital preservation specialist for individuals. I'm joined now by Rushir Desai, who is fund manager at Asia Frontier Capital. Good morning, Rushir. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So tell me um, a bit about the frontier markets um, and and particularly how they're holding up compared to all the international considerations, all the geopolitical situations that are going on around the world. What's the performance like? Well, actually, if you look at frontier markets and more specifically frontier markets in Asia is what we focus on. Many of these Asian frontier markets have started the year off pretty strong given what's going on globally with talk about interest rates and inflation and uh, the U.S. banking crisis, etc. For example, Iraq is the Iraqi market is up more than 40% in U.S. dollar terms. Sri Lanka is up about 20% in dollar terms, and Kazakhstan is up about 10 or 11%. So, pretty strong start across the board, pretty much across the board for most Asian frontier markets. Uh, and that's because of the fact that many of these markets are, I would say, less correlated from some of these events. Uh, such as the U.S. banking crisis or the European banking crisis. So it doesn't really affect what happens, say, in, in Bangladesh or Vietnam or Sri Lanka, from that matter, especially in the banking sector, because the banks in our universe are very domestic-focused. They focus on the domestic economy with traditional lending and, and deposit products. And also, just to add to that, the the amount of credit in the economy in our markets is still very low. So, you know, loan penetration in our markets is extremely low compared to, say, the U.S. or Europe. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's very, uh, less risk of contagion in these economies if something happens, say, to a, a smaller U.S. bank or a, or a larger European bank. And how are they going to be affected by the, the Fed, which is going to raise interest rates almost certainly by 25 basis points tomorrow? Some people think that may be the end of the cycle. Others not so sure. What sort of impact does that have on the frontier markets? Right. So I think given what's happened in the U.S. with the, with the Fed raising rates uh, since last March, I think that's impacted pretty much every market globally. I don't think any market has been averse to not being impacted by it. So interest rates have also risen in our markets quite significantly. But just to add to that, I think central banks in our in our universe, the central banks in the Asian frontier markets have been very aggressive in raising interest rates because, because inflation was already picking up quite significantly even before U.S. inflation started picking up. So, for example, central banks in, in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Kazakhstan have been very aggressive. They raise interest rates by significantly more than the Fed. Uh, interest rates in Sri Lanka have been have gone up by about 10% in the last one year. Interest rates in Pakistan are about 21%, and Kazakhstan is about 17%. So pretty aggressive interest rate hikes from many of these central banks. So I think we are, we are given maybe the Fed raises tomorrow or not, and maybe they are done or not, but I think in terms of the headwinds from in, from inflation interest rates for on Asian frontier markets, I think we are beyond that curve now. So I think uh, we've already we've passed the worst in terms of those headwinds impacting the economy and also investor sentiment. And, and is inflation under control? We know a couple of places where it's been a crisis. Sri Lanka, obviously, one of them. Uh, Pakistan has the highest inflation rate now um, in the region. But what about elsewhere? Have central banks succeeded in getting control of inflation? Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's pretty diverse across the board. Of course, like you mentioned, Pakistan and Sri Lanka have very high inflation rates, but for example, for example, Vietnam inflation is pretty much under control. 
it's between three and a half to four percent, which is quite manageable given what's going on in other other markets, even for the, for example, in the U.S. as well. And the central bank in Vietnam has raised interest rates because of the fact that they're very trade dependent and they have to manage the currency as well. So they've been aggressive in raising interest rates as well. But inflation uh, is still not as high as, say, Pakistan or Sri Lanka also, or U.S. for that matter. Uh, and yeah, also, for example, Kazakhstan has seen a high inflation, but other markets like Georgia, uh, which is also part of the universe, has seen inflation coming off quite significantly. Inflation for the month of uh, March was about 5% compared to 10% last year. So it's coming off. So it really depends on the market. But broadly, I would say, we are, like I said in my in my earlier comment as well, we are, we are beyond these headwinds because inflation is kind of trending down now. For example, in Sri Lanka, inflation was at about 70%, uh, I believe, at the end of last year. Now it's about 35% for the month of April. So trending down, I think it'll, it'll continue to trend down because interest rates have risen. You get the high base impact as well. The currencies have depreciated, which which makes imports more expensive. So overall, I mean, I'm, I'm more positive on the inflation outlook on our markets going into 2024. Mm. And another big trend that's going on around the region is the shifting supply chains um, with manufacturers moving um, out of China into other countries. Where are the beneficiaries amongst the frontier markets in Asia? There are a few beneficiaries in our universe within the Asian frontier market universe, but I would say the biggest beneficiary, not just in our universe, but I would say the biggest beneficiary in Asia at least is Vietnam by far. I mean, if you look at the numbers in terms of foreign direct investments coming into Vietnam, they've been about $20 billion a year consistently over the last five or six years at about 6% of GDP. And most of this FDI is going into the manufacturing sector, and this manufacturing sector is basically producing goods and products for the export market, especially the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and clearly, Vietnam has been a clear beneficiary of that. For example, their exports to the U.S. from the beginning of 2018 to uh, probably last month have doubled on a monthly basis, because one definitely because of the trade tensions between China and the U.S. So Vietnam has become a very important trade partner for the U.S., especially in the last five years. And besides that as well, I think over the, over the last decade, Vietnam's exports have grown by about, cumulatively by about 13%. I don't think any other... A uh, smaller economy in Asia has done such a tremendous job in terms of export growth and building up their export base like Vietnam. But besides Vietnam, I would say Bangladesh has also doing quite well, mm. but particularly in the garment sector. So Bangladesh is very focused as of now on the garment sector. Uh, maybe in the future they diversify into other products, but right now garments is their strong point. Uh, they've become the second biggest garment exporter globally after China. Uh, they, are the second, they have the high, second highest market share uh, in the U.S. for uh, for garment for garment imports, uh, so they've done very well over there. So again, they've they've also seen a pretty good growth in the garment exports over the last decade or so. And even over the last six or seven months, despite the stock of slow growth in the U.S. and Europe, their exports haven't really come off a cliff. I mean, they've in the last twelve months, uh, exports have grown about fourteen point five percent. And for the month of March, exports were down about two point five percent. So they're not really falling off a cliff. Yes, there could be some softness, but I'm not so concerned about slow export growth in Bangladesh and Vietnam for the next couple of quarters. I mean, if, if the U.S. and Europe slows down, of course, there'll be an impact on Bangladesh and Vietnam in terms of the export growth. But I mean, looking at a more longer-term trend over here, and the longer-term longer term trend is very much in their favor because of the fact that many of the companies are moving out of China and other high-cost locations into Bangladesh and Vietnam. Mm. What about some of the Central Asian countries? There's also obviously a shift of supply chains out of Russia. Are, are the Central Asian countries benefiting from that? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Central Asian countries are benefiting quite a bit, especially in the last year since the conflict or war in Ukraine uh, happened uh, last February. Uh, so many countries like Georgia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan have benefited a lot. 
Uh, I think one clear beneficiary in Central Asia or in the region has been Georgia. They've benefited significantly from various avenues. For example, they've seen a large influx of longer-term visitors from Russia, from Belarus, and also from Ukraine coming into the country. Uh, so that's really helped their tourism revenues rise significantly. So I think it was one of the first few countries globally to go back to pre-pandemic levels of tourism revenues uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, they've seen high remittance inflows because all the Russians and Ukrainians are bringing their capital with them and they stay long-term in the country. They've also seen influx of, uh, because of the human capital coming in, they've seen, you know, uh, pretty uh, well-educated and, well, and, 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 you know, strong professionals coming into the country. It really helps their economy in terms of human capital as well and also helps their exports also because I think a lot of the trade routes which are going via Russia from east to west are now transiting via Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Georgia. So that's really helping, you know, these countries. For example, the biggest port in Georgia on the Black Sea coast is now operating at full capacity. So there's no capacity in the port because of these transit routes doing so well. So, yes, they're really benefiting. Even in, for example, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan have seen influx of, you know, people from Russia. They've seen remittance increases and exports increase. So I think this is another trend to watch because I don't think the sanctions on Russia are going to go away anywhere time soon, even if the conflict comes to some kind of stalemate or some kind of end, uh, because these sanctions are here to stay. And I think this region will benefit a lot uh, over the next year, five or six years. That's something to keep a watch on. And what about tourism? You mentioned that a bit earlier. Is that, uh, is that picking up in countries like Cambodia and Vietnam and, and Sri Lanka? Absolutely. I think tourism is being a very strong comeback across our markets, especially in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam's uh, tourist, tourist arrival numbers for the month of March were about back to 70% of pre-pandemic arrivals, which is pretty strong. They're doing almost a million tourists a month now. Uh, which is which is fantastic given that they were, they just opened up about a year ago. Uh, and that's really helping the economy because this year will be a bit of a softer year for Vietnam's economy given that they're very trade-dependent and exports are kind of weak. First quarter GDP growth was about 3.2%, which was below expectations. So I think the tourism sector uh, will really help them support GDP growth this year. And also Sri Lanka is seeing a, big, a bit of a rebound as well, especially now they've got some political stability into the country. So... Tourist arrivals for the last few months have been back to about 60% of pre-pandemic levels. So again, I think you're seeing uh, this lot of tourism pick up in other parts of Asia, and that's really also helping our markets as well. So a, a big support for these economies. And what are valuations like across the frontier markets? Very, very attractive, actually. So, for example, for our fund itself, the AFC Asia Frontier Fund valuations... Uh, the PE ratio is, is at its all-time low, about 6.9 times. So it's never been so low. 6.9 times. Absolutely. So wow. it just shows the value in our markets at this point in time. And even across the board, if you look at, for example, Sri Lanka's about six times, Pakistan's about four times. Even Vietnam, which is a very attractive market, has trained at a forward P multiple for Vietnam is about 10 times. So it's a very attractive valuation at this point in time. And on a bottom-up basis, the companies are perfectly fine. The companies we hold are, are, are blue-chip companies. They have very strong ROEs of more than 20%. Earnings growth over the last three years has been about 20%. And uh, fundamentally, okay, so it's just that once the macro headwinds that the global economy faces in terms of interest rates and inflation, I think once that turns, I think the Asian frontier markets are very well primed for a strong re-rating over the next 6 or 12 months. And one market in particular I wanted to ask you about, because we have listeners who are interested in it, you mentioned it earlier, Vietnam. What, what's the outlook for both Vietnam's economy and, and also its, uh, its stock market? Right, so I'll kind of split that up into two parts, so the short term and the medium to long term. I would say the short term, that is this year, Vietnam's economy is going to face some headwinds. 
because they're very export dependent. Uh, exports are about 100% of GDP. So very a very trade dependent economy. And of course, if the US and Europe slow down, their exports will take a hit. And that affects the economy as well and also domestic consumption. So in the first quarter, GDP growth was, was about 3.2%, which was below estimates. Uh, so I would be very happy if they even do 5% GDP growth this year, given the headwinds that the global economy faces, mm-hmm. especially the export sector. But besides that, I think they've also have high, they've also had to raise interest rates last year because of what the Fed has been doing. So the State Bank of Vietnam raised interest rates by 200 basis points in a matter of two months, last September and last October. They cut by 25 basis points last in, in, in at the end of March, but it's still high. And that's affected sentiment in terms of just the stock market sentiment and also the sentiment in the in the real estate sector uh, because people can people can't take out mortgage mortgage loans so easily or can't take out loans for their capacity expansion so easily and besides that the government has kind of cracked down on the property sector uh, in terms of the corporate bonds which the the real estate companies uh, were using corporate bonds to raise capital that has been kind of uh, cracked down by the government and that's also affected sentiment so that's another headwind for the economy so short term, I think this year would kind of be softer for Vietnam compared to the kind of growth rates that we've we've seen in the last few years of seven seven percent GDP growth uh, or six or seven percent GDP growth. But I think looking beyond 2023, once things stabilize in terms of global interest rates, as also in inflation and interest rates in Vietnam, exports kind of uh, start picking up again. Uh, domestic consumption should recover as well. Plus, the longer term trend of the manufacturing shift into Vietnam. That's a big key. I think that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, so that's going to ha- continue happening. Even for this year, I think the foreign direct investment numbers uh, up to April of this year have been pretty strong. So that's not changing from any from from any angle. So I think beyond 2023, if you look at all the other important factors like the manufacturing shift, like the demographics, domestic consumption, uh, the rise of exports, I think it should help Vietnam go back to about 6% plus GDP growth. And given where valuations are right now at 10 times, I think... This is a good opportunity to look at Vietnam from a longer-term perspective. Rushia, thank you very much indeed. That's Rushia Desai, who is fund manager at Asia Frontier Capital. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. It's Fed Day tomorrow. Joining me to discuss the latest monetary policy decision from the US Central Bank are Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Simon Kavanagh, who is partner at BDA Partners. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.